You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hey everyone, this is Matt, producer of the Hayek Program podcast. We've reached the end of another great year of episodes, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to and engaging with them as much as I have. The Hayek Program podcast is just one small piece of the F.A. Hayek Program, which is devoted to the promotion of teaching and research on the institutional arrangements that are suitable for the support of free and prosperous societies. If you would like to partner with us in this mission, we'd love for you to consider making a financial contribution this holiday season before the end of the year at donate.mercatus.org podcasts. That's donate.mercatus.org slash podcasts. Any donation you submit will go towards the production of the show as we bring you exciting new conversations with our scholars. Additionally, anyone who donates $75 or more or makes a monthly contribution of $5 or more will receive a copy of The Struggle for a Better World signed by Peter Betke himself. Again, the website to contribute at is donate.mercatus.org slash podcasts. Thank you so much for your support of the Hayek Program podcast. We're really looking forward to what's in store for 2022. And with that, let's listen in on today's conversation. Today is uh, Tuesday, uh, December 7th, uh, 2021. Hopefully a day that doesn't live in infamy. Um, and uh, we're here today to talk about uh, Mario Rizzo and, and Glenn Whitman's uh, new book, Escaping Paternalism. I want to, before we get started, congratulate Mario and Glenn on just recently winning the award at the Southern Economic Association meetings for the best book in Austrian economics. And I think a well-deserved uh, prize and acknowledgement. And I hope the first of many such acknowledgements for this work. Um, to uh, Mario is a professor of economics at New York University and the director of the Austrian economics program there. It's now called Markets and Institutions. Um, it's been in existence since the 1970s, and Mario's been a major contributor to that area. Uh, Glenn Whitman is a professor at uh, California State Northridge, um, as well as a very successful uh, writer in, in Hollywood and whatnot. And uh, Glenn is, uh, uh, you know, one of the, the great products of that Austrian program at NYU um, and has uh, made major contributions to the field of law and economics, um, as well as now behavioral economics. Um, and we're joined in this conversation with Sandra Pert, who is the dean at the Jepson School uh, at University of Richmond. Um, and also uh, Professor Bart Wilson from Chapman University as well in California. And so I'm going to turn the floor over to Mario and Glenn, and you can get started on uh, the conversation. All right. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here today, uh, wherever here is exactly. Um, and um, I think I should begin by talking a little about what motivated our uh, research. Uh, there were two articles in 2003, uh, one by Sunstein and Thaler, and the other by Camera, Rabin, O'Donoghue, and others, uh, both of which were provocatively named. Uh, the first one was called Libertarian Paternalism, and the second was called Regulation for Conservatives. Uh, both papers attempted to justify paternalistic legislation on grounds of behavioral economics. Their basic argument was that behavioral economics shows that people aren't fully rational. They make systematic mistakes that reduce their welfare. Therefore, there's room for targeted government intervention that will help better satisfy uh, people's own preferences. These papers were just the beginning. Many more articles uh, have followed this literature, and uh, which we call, by the way, behavioral paternalism. Soon we realized that behavioral uh, economics 
at least a good part of it, was moving rapidly into the field of political advocacy. Often, uh, the behavioral paternalist approach is called nudging, emphasizing only changes in default rules and other seemingly innocuous interventions. But in reality, it's actually a wide-ranging interventionist agenda that reaches all the way from defaults to cooling off periods to syntaxes uh, to outright bans and mandates in some cases. This is Glenn jumping in here. Uh, it's worth noting that this new paternalism is notably different from the old style of paternalism. And what distinguishes new versus old paternalism is the line of justification that they use. Old paternalism often came from a religious or moralistic point of view, and it would condemn people's bad preferences directly. So if you like the demon drink, that's a preference that you should not have and that we should not serve. Uh, but the new paternalism, on the other hand, supposedly took people's preferences as given. And it would argue that targeted interventions could actually make people better off, not according to somebody else's standards, but according to people's own standards. And so this is often called the by their own lights or as judged by themselves approach. And I think that argument in particular is what really got our attention as economists, because it seemed so implausible to us that third parties would be able to do better for individuals than they could do for themselves. And so we set about responding, and we've written a handful of articles on the topic, and this book essentially represents the culmination of that work that brought together all of those arguments and more. Now, there isn't one silver bullet uh, response to behavioral paternalism. So our approach uh, offers a series of challenges, which we sometimes call the gauntlet, ranging from abstract and conceptual to the concrete and applied. Uh, this involves, for example, challenging the concept of rationality that behavioral economists use to deem people irrational or perhaps sometimes boundedly rational and thus in need of correction. Challenging uh, the bias interpretation is another feature of our work. Um, and we challenge also the readiness of this literature for policy applications. We also highlight the knowledge problem of behavioral paternalism and note that the paternalist planner lacks a wide range of relevant knowledge that he would need to make in order to make uh, welfare improving uh, policies. We also point to the public choice problem of behavioral paternalism which indicates that it's very unlikely that actual paternalist policies would be well calibrated to achieve their objectives, uh, but instead are more likely to fall prey to the depredations of rent seekers and moralists. Discussing the slippery slope tendencies of paternalism is something else that we did in the book and in our articles. Uh, the claim to moderation, uh, minor interventions that do not infringe choice in any serious way, can't be sustained, we think, because behavioral paternalist, the behavioral paternalist project uh, has various features that tend to encourage slippage uh, to more intrusive policies. We don't have time in here to discuss all of these arguments in depth, so we focus on just two of them. First, the challenge uh, to the notion of rationality, and secondly, the knowledge problem. So I'm gonna join back in here to talk about the first of those two arguments we're gonna talk about today, the conceptual challenge on the rationality front. Uh, you know, laymen hearing the term rationality, they naturally think, of course, rationality is good and irrationality is bad. But it's important to realize that the notion of rationality being used by behavioral paternalists, it's a very particular conception that is actually taken directly from neoclassical economics. And that's kind of ironic because behavioral economists have this reputation for having disproven the old neoclassical variety of rationality used by most economists. But although they've rejected that variety of rationality for descriptive purposes, it turns out that they've swallowed it whole for normative purposes. In other words, as a description of people, how people should behave. 
So what is that neoclassical definition of rationality that has been adopted by the behavioral paternalists? Well, it's based on a set of axioms with names like uh, completeness and transitivity. And these axioms, when taken together, essentially what they do is guarantee that every person has a fully consistent and fully comprehensive ranking of all possible outcomes in the universe of possibilities that they might conceivably face. And then they take that ranking and they simply implement it to make all of their choices. And so behavioral economic, uh, economics has largely operated by finding a series of violations of those consistency requirements. In other words, situations where people's ranking of A versus B seems to be a function of seemingly irrelevant features of the environment or timing or how the problem situation is described. I'll give you just a couple of examples of these. Uh, one is the case of framing bias, where people make a different choice depending on how a situation is described. For example, they are more likely to agree to a surgery with a 90% chance of success than they would to a surgery described as having a 10% chance of failure. Even though these things are ostensibly the same thing, one of those wordings makes people more likely to agree. And that seems like an inconsistency. Uh, another example, and this one comes up very frequent, frequently in the paternalistic literature, is present bias, which is often called hyperbolic discounting. And this is the idea that when people are offered two possible rewards, a larger later reward and a smaller sooner reward, but that choice is one that is in the distance. It's say a year, a year away. So the smaller sooner reward comes in 365 days and the larger later reward comes in 366 days they will make the more patient choice. But then if you advance that decision 365 days, so suddenly the, so, uh, the smaller sooner reward is now and the larger later reward is tomorrow, then they experience what is called a preference reversal and they choose the smaller sooner reward. And so this is called present bias or hyperbolic discounting and is often regarded, first of all, as an inconsistency and therefore a red flag of irrationality and also as a justification for how we might intervene to help people to say uh, better, better control their eating choices or consumption choices or better save for the future. So uh, what is our response to these claims of alleged irrationality on the basis of inconsistency? Well, we say that this was never a sound way of defining rationality. It's one that was invented in economics primarily for mathematical purposes. It made constructing models of choice easier. And it also fortunately turned out to be reasonably good at predicting actual behavior in a wide range of situations. Um, but somewhere along the way, it then got drafted into serving not just as a positive model of how people might behave, but as a prescriptive model of how people should or must behave. And that's a purpose that these axioms were really never suited for. So as an alternative, Mario and I introduced the idea of inclusive rationality, which preserves the idea that people engage in purposeful behavior subject constraints but it's also more realistic and not placing so many unnecessary restrictions on what would constitute rational behavior. People don't necessarily have to have a comprehensive pre-ordering of all possibilities at the beginning of time. Instead, they're engaged in a real-time process of discovering and forming their preferences over time. And this process will naturally lead to some apparent inconsistencies particularly when people are presented with unfamiliar decision situations. People might also have preferences over things that traditional economic models don't allow them to. For instance, they might care about the process by which an outcome comes to be rather than just the outcome itself. And how they feel about an outcome can be influenced by what it was chosen over or compared to. Uh, they might also have preferences over beliefs. They might get some direct satisfaction or utility from certain beliefs rather than simply only holding beliefs purely for the purpose of truth tracking and so on. 
Uh, people can also adopt a wide array of strategies for coping with an uncertain world. And they process information in different ways, but often still functional ways that don't necessarily reflect the strict application of a Bayesian approach, the Bayesian approach usually advocated by neoclassical and now behavioral economists. And finally, when people detect biases in their own thinking, which is a judgment that ultimately depends on their own subjective wants and needs, that's how you would know what constitutes a genuine bias, they adopt various tools for self-debiasing, such as adopting resolutions and commitments and enlisting the help of family and friends, uh, structuring their own home and work environments, and so on. So in short, we reject the idea that comprehensive consistency of preferences is a requirement of rationality. But furthermore, even if the behavioral paternalists were correct in their claim that people are irrational if they are inconsistent, there's a huge non sequitur in their argument. Because in any case where there is an inconsistency of preference, that inconsistency can be corrected in more than one way. So for instance, if a person has inconsistent rates of time preference, as implied by the hyperbolic discounting approach, uh, so they're sometimes more patient and sometimes less patient, this can be fixed or made consistent by making them either consistently patient or consistently impatient. The behavioral paternalists have always chosen the former, deciding that the rational set of preferences is the ones that are consistently patient, but they actually simply have no grounds in theory or evidence for making that jump. It's a pure non sequitur, and they commit the same kind of analytical non sequitur with respect to other identified inconsistencies of preference as well. So this challenging of the behavioral paternalist conception of rationality is the first step in the gauntlet. We, we cast doubt on their identification of the problem itself. The behavioral paternalists think they found this smoking gun that justified interventions because people were behaving inconsistently and violating those neoclassical axioms of rationality. But we say that's a problem with the axioms. It's not a problem with the people that we're analyzing. And now I'll turn it back to Mario. Okay, so now let's move on to the uh, second uh, challenge that we're uh, expanding on today, the knowledge problem of behavioral paternalism. This one has been especially on our minds lately because in the time since our book was published, Sunstein has essentially claimed to have solved the problem, at least claimed that it can be solved in principle. There's an important difference between solving a problem and solving it in principle, and we may discuss that later. Um, the name of the argument uh, is a reference to Hayek's famous knowledge problem in the context of the socialist calculation debate of the 1920s through the 1940s. In essence, advocates of socialism said that the central planner equipped with all the relevant information about resources, preferences, technologies, et cetera, could construct a rational central plan. But Hayek said essentially no. The problem is that they were assuming away the problem. That is to say, they were assuming away the question of how the central planners would come to possess such knowledge which by its nature is diffuse, diff existing as it does in the minds of thousands of individuals rather than collected in one place. Prices and profits are the mechanism by which people do come to possess such knowledge or suitable proxies for it. Now the application to behavioral paternalism is fairly straightforward. Uh, individual decision-making is an inherently complex process that necessarily depends upon local and tacit knowledge possessed by the individual. Behavioral economists have not advanced to the point of view where policymakers come even close to having this kind of knowledge, and most likely they never will. There's a whole range of knowledge uh, that they would have to have, that they would need, uh, but do not possess. Let me give you some examples. First, the knowledge of, two, of true preferences. Now, what are true preferences? Uh, 
Taylor and Sunstein defined them fairly succinctly at one point by saying they're the preferences that people would have if they had unlimited cognitive abilities, complete information, and no lack of willpower. Now, without going into detail, uh, it seems to me this is a, a big uh, ask for economists to discover what people's preferences would be under those circumstances. Secondly, they would need to know the knowledge uh, they would need to have, excuse me, the knowledge of the extent of biases that need correction. Now, it's not enough to know that a bias exists, for example, the be present bias, but many of the policy recommendations require that we know something about the extent of the bias, the degree of the bias. How much are people present biased in a particular context? That will affect for, certain, uh, for such things as the extent of the internality tax that must be applied, the tax that would offset uh, the present bias. We also need to have knowledge of bias interactions. Um, you know, not all biases move in the same direction. Uh, Wikipedia has 170 biases and they move in very different directions. Biases in a particular context can move in opposite directions. Can we figure out with adequate knowledge of the extent of these biases, what the net result is in order to calibrate uh, policy? Uh, we also have a problem of counteracting behaviors. Uh, when people, for example, substitute uh, diet sodas for uh, uh, for sugar sweetened sodas, they often increase the consumption of calories elsewhere. Uh, how does a policymaker account for that? And finally, uh, the knowledge of self-regulation, um, you know, and group debiasing as well. Uh, self-regulation is uh, an important element because if people have already engaged in a form of self-regulation, then attempts to offset uh, their behavior uh, may be, in effect, uh, double trouble. That is to say, they've already reduced their behavior to their satisfaction in, in, in uh, for example, in dieting, and yet the behavioral paternalists impose more policies that encourage them to reduce their behavior even more, more than the optimal amount. And group debiasing, I think, is an important element that uh, needs more uh, attention. There's a substantial literature that shows that in small groups, uh, four, five, six, or seven, uh, people actually uh, commit fewer bias mistakes. And biases are eroded and sometimes completely eliminated in group decision making. And the relevance of all this is that a lot of decisions that people make are the outcome of discussions with other people, family or friends. And so they take on some of the characteristics of group decision making. So it may be the case then that in many of the policy areas, people are in fact uh, debiasing themselves through discussions with, with other people. And the behavioral paternalists need to have knowledge of this, which they usually do not have in specific circumstances. I'm going to jump in here and talk about the last category of types of knowledge in that kind of typology that Mario was laying out. Because there's one more category of knowledge that's arguably more important than all the others, which is knowledge of population heterogeneity. And the reason this category is so important is because it actually cuts across all of the other categories that Mario just discussed. So there is diversity or heterogeneity of true preferences in the population. There's diversity of the extent of biases and even which biases that people have. Uh, there are different bias interactions. There are heterogeneous modes of self-regulation and group debiasing. In other words, everybody has their own idiosyncratic ways of trying to regulate their own behavior and correct their own self-perceived deficiencies. And so this is really where the rubber hits the road for the knowledge problem, as I see it, because it's the reason that scientific knowledge can't substitute for local knowledge. This was a distinction that goes back to Friedrich Hayek. He pointed out that there may be scientific knowledge that is possessed by central planners, but that's not the only kind of knowledge that's necessary for people in an economy making decisions about consumption, about production, and so on. 
So to take just one example in the central planning context, we might imagine that a central planner has knowledge of, say, the average cost of production across an, in, across an industry. But of what help is that knowledge for planning? Because the vast majority of individual factories out there will not have a cost structure that is exactly equivalent to the average. So the right decision for them has nothing to do with the average over the industry as a whole and everything to do with the particular circumstances and particular cost structures that they face. Likewise, applying that in the paternalist context, even if the paternalist planner happens to know that a bias exists on a population level and that it has a certain average extent or strength across that population, which is actually more information than we actually have in the current state of behavioral economics. But suppose that we had that. The point is, is even if we had that, few individuals would have that same average level of bias. And what ostensibly needs correction is their individual level of bias. So unless a policy can be designed somehow on an individual level, everybody gets their own personal correction from the state, which seems highly unlikely then the policy has to be based on the average or perhaps a judgment of the entire distribution of the population. But the, the policy itself will necessarily have a one-size-fits-all character. Everyone is exposed to the same nudge. Everyone's exposed to the same syntax. Everyone is exposed to the same cooling off period and so on. And that one-size-fits-all policy will then be precisely wrong for most of the people that it's applied to. It will be an overcorrection for some and an undercorrection for others. By contrast, private and self-imposed debiasing, while certainly not perfect, it has the singular virtue of being largely bespoke. It responds specifically to the particular circumstances of the individual, responding to their own values and their own problems as they perceive them. So the question is, how do the behavioral paternalists deal with the issue of heterogeneity? And the answer is they, for the most part, have not addressed it at all. Uh, in his recent article on this, Cass Sunstein claims to deal with the knowledge problem, but heterogeneity hardly gets a mention in that context. In a nutshell, he just doesn't address it. Here is an actual quote from that article and what he says. He says, as noted, there might be heterogeneity in the relevant population making it challenging to generalize from what some part of a population does. But suppose that there is no such heterogeneity. In principle and sometimes in practice, efforts to answer these subsidiary questions should help public institutions with welfare analysis. So that's it. He essentially assumes away the problem. Yes, heterogeneity is out there, but let's, let's imagine that the heterogeneity does not exist. Well, in that case, we could solve the knowledge problem. But the problem is the knowledge problem itself relies crucially on this notion of heterogeneity. Heterogeneity is the heart of that knowledge problem. Back to Mario. Okay. So let me make a few concluding remarks and then we'll go to the uh, other participants and Q&A. Um, again, we've uh, only discussed really two chapters of the book, but hopefully they give a flavor for our position. We should emphasize again that we are not anti-behavioral economics, only that we want to imbue the field with some humility before half-baked policies are sold to the public. We also have no objection to the idea that individuals have biases and make mistakes. We are confident that they do. But the nature of such biases and mistakes is to be both person-specific and context-specific in a way that strongly privileges a private approach to identifying and dealing with such problems. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this is Sandra speaking, and I'd like to say good afternoon to all of you and uh, thank everyone for uh, the invitation uh, to speak today about this really fine book. Um, unsurprisingly, I've chosen to give some historical context uh, to the book in my remarks. Um, so I'll be speaking a little bit about uh, the old paternalism that Glenn just mentioned. Um, in my remarks, I want briefly to uh, highlight 
how the approach to human behavior and choice defended by Rizzo and Whitman in escaping paternalism has much in common with that of John Stuart Mill and Philip Wicksteed and departs from the standard neoclassical account developed by William Stanley Jevons. I'll proceed as follows. First, I'll connect the Rizzo-Whitman case for limited paternalism, or as they call it, paternalist resistant framework, the framework, uh, to Mill's approach and the no harm principle. And then I'll turn to uh, Jevons and, and argue that he, by contrast, calls for a series of interventions to alter the entire locus of decisions uh, of poor people, especially, like the prescriptive paternalists with whom Rizzo and Whitman take issue, Jevons was confident that he knew how his subjects should act. He was ready and willing to recommend policies to correct their so-called improvidence and immorality. Jevons' purported disciple, who actually I think departed uh, significantly from Jevons, Philip Wicksteed, provides a counterexample to the all-out policy attack advocated by Jevons. In contrast to, with Jevons, Wicksteed observed the world around him and sought to understand why and how people acted as they do. I would say that he's an inclusive rationalist. I'll conclude with some speculations about why Jevons, rather than Mill and Wicksteed, seems to have won the day in economic analysis and policy development. Speculations that I think are consistent with uh, Rizzo and Whitman's uh, important analysis. So starting with Mill, learning by choosing. Mill's logic is a testament to the difficulties associated with ascertaining regularities and making predictions in the face of what he referred to as pronounced multiplicity of causes, that's his phrase, in social science. The study of society was plagued by complexity and in such circumstances, Mill insisted that, quote, no assertion which is both precise and universally true can be made respecting the manner in which human beings will think, feel, or act. That's from his logic. He allowed that what he called a separate and inexact science of political economy, dealing with the effects of a few main causes, such as greater gain is preferred to lesser gain, might be carved out from the entirety of social phenomena. The study of policy, however, was to remain within the full study of society, whereas he put it, the causes are so numerous and intermixed in so complex a manner with one another that even supposing their laws known, the computation of the aggregate effects transcends the power of calculation. But what exactly for Mill is the essence of human activity? To answer this question, I turn my attention to On Liberty, which describes people as agents who choose, who reflect, who discuss, and who learn. Indeed, On Liberty provides a strong rationale for why it is important for people to be offered a fulsome set of choices. In his view, we develop our capacity to choose only by making choices. We make and we remake ourselves in the course of making decisions. This possibility of remaking ourselves is a key theme in Rizzo and Whitman. And it features heavily in Mill's autobiography, where famously he talks about remaking himself. By making choices, we learn not only, uh, we not only learn which ones are good and bad, but we also develop a range of abilities that are required to get along in life. As he puts it, the human faculties of perception, judgment, discriminative feeling, mental activity, and even moral preference are exercised only in making a choice. He who does anything because it is the custom makes no choice. He gains no practice either in discerning or in desiring what is best. That's from his On Liberty. Thus, for Mill, people are imperfect, but they're constantly exploring and possibly improving in the course of their interactions with each other. So the first reason for Mill's anti-paternalism um, stance is that by choosing uh, for others, 
we deny their personhood. Mill also uh, insisted and more famously insisted that when we try to choose for someone else, we frequently get it wrong. Since that's something that is more well-known, I'm not gonna uh, belabor the point. But in sum, for Mill, society has no business interfering with a person's choices of how to live, at least up to the point where those choices do not cause harm to others. This, of course, is the famous no harm principle. Mill distinguishes between choices that affect oneself and those that affect others, what he, talk, he calls self and other regarding choices. Um, but what does he mean by harm? Um, so uh, choices that affect others are subject to a harm principle, but what does he mean by harm? And does the no harm principle imply that liberty is circumscribed in all cases of harm? By harm, Mill seems to have in mind something more than a transitory or a trivial hurt. He uses the word permanent and the words in the largest sense to describe harms. Um, he means something uh, that a reasonably informed person would anticipate or that, that an actual harm of such sort uh, has happened. Given Mill's presumption that people learn and improve via choice, it's no surprise that not all harms justify a prohibition on action. First, transitory and slight harms generally do not require a prescription, a centrally imposed prohibition. Simple conventions uh, most likely will arise to deal with such situations. In these cases, notwithstanding his worry about social control, Mutual approval might enforce a no harm uh, set of conventions. So we might agree, for instance, that I will use my arm to cover my mouth when I cough, as will you, and our mutual worry about disapproving looks helps us to remember to do so. Moving on to Jevons. Jevons, unlike Mill, was much less worried about the difficulties associated with knowing why people choose as they do. He's also much more confident that, uh, than Mill in the scientists and the political economists' uh, ability to predict outcomes and design policies that in his view will improve the choices, especially of the laboring poor. His procedure in the theory of political economy proposed the theoretical uh, problem of uh, utility maximization, solves free equilibrium conditions and admits that these conditions uh, pertain to an imaginary, all-knowing consumer. At the same time, Jevons recognized that consumers in practice do not attain these conditions. He outlined two reasons for this. Unsystematic mistakes um, that apparently average out over time, he's a little fuzzy on this, sometimes average out across consumers, and what he's much more interested in, systematic mistakes. The latter concerns him, uh, as I say, the most. It's here that he sees a broad scope for education and apparent improvement. In his account, poor people were especially prone to such biases. Jevons worried that they systematically undersaved, they uh, made poor work decisions, they married poorly, they underinvested in education, and they acquired what Jevons regarded as inferior tastes uh, in music and many other uh, things. These were the situations that warranted a wide array of policy interventions to move people closer to his all-knowing, perfect consumer. In contrast with Mill's emphasis on learning and remaking, there's no evidence to indicate that Jevons believed that people are motivated to find ways to improve themselves. At least there's no evidence that I can find. So the policymaker has warrant to reduce ignorance. The policymaker is to improve their subjects, his, its subjects morally. Roughly speaking, the two areas for inter, those two er, areas for intervention corresponded to improving the lot of the poor by helping them see into the future and then giving them the needed willpower to hold off spending too much in the present. In proceeding thusly, Jevons waded into what the behavioral paternalists would refer to as consistency, suppo supposing that his subject lacks willpower, 
they apparently make decisions that they would later regret at some future uh, date. In this, to use Rizzo and Whitman's language, the theorist Jevons stepped outside the mind to define what is good for it. By, as he put it, as Jevons put it, besieging the citadel of poverty and ignorance and vice, Jevons recommended a series of interventions to improve the poor in all dimensions. Indeed, his works reveal that he has in mind a vast remaking of their tastes. Wicksteed's Inclusive Rationality. Wicksteed's approach is consistent with that of Mill and Rizzo and Whitman. Uh, like them, Wicksteed finds no reason to insist that subjects have consistent preferences. Uh, indeed, he explores reasons why apparent inconsistencies make sense. And here he hits upon the costliness of thought. For Wicksteed, everything, including thought and discussion, is costly. Nothing is free. If one's internal computations come at a cost, then there's no reason to believe that the resulting choice will have the same properties as it would with free computations. Thus, there's no reason to preclude, preclude the favorite finding of behavioral paternalism, uh, paternalists of intransitive orderings. Supposing agents are purposive, one generally cannot count on their choices being rational as modern economists understand the word. Wicksteed opined that, as he put it, no man's scale is completely consistent. And then he came up with a number of explanations for these apparent inconsistencies. So I hope I've given you a flavor of why or how um, Mill and the approach by Rizzo and Whitman are similar. And in addition, I've traced the similarities between Jevons and behavioral paternalists. Yet Rizzo and Whitman correctly highlight a key difference between early paternalism and that of behavioral paternalists. Um, and uh, Glenn alluded to this. They argue that unlike early forms of paternalism, behavioral paternalists attempt to help people satisfy their existing preferences. By contrast, in his theory of political economy and throughout his economics, Jevons is clear that in fact a systematic remaking is in order for poor people only when their preferences have been attacked and reshaped on all fronts from musical tastes to savings behavior and lab labor force participation decisions would he be satisfied that we have remade poor people in accordance with the best advice of the economic theorist. An additional contrast perhaps goes unnoticed in Rizzo and Whitman. As I've just emphasized, Jevons and other late 19th century paternalists targeted the laboring poor in their analysis of purported irrationalities. By contrast, the behavioral paternalists um, uh, posit mistakes in the choices of any and all consumers. In that view, we all suffer from biases and other forms of purported irrationality. Many, if not all of the supposed biases examined uh, by Rizzo and Whitman, including present bias, supposed lack of willpower, incompleteness, and intransitivities, do feature prominently in Jevons' late 19th century analysis of the laboring classes. Such biases also, as I've noted, provide wide scope for policy intervention. And perhaps this is why the neoclassical approach overthrew the earlier approach by Mill or the attempted realism of Wicksteed. Some experts who studied people and policy early in the 20th century seemed eager to step in and advocate wholesale remaking for particular groups deemed especially inferior. This leads to a final contrast between the early neoclassical perspective exemplified by Jevons and that of the behavioral paternalists, one that may well be significant and one that Mario uh, from his remarks today may um, take issue with. So I'm, I'm not sure how much I wanna push this. Um, those who wish to nudge consumers or producers are indeed confident in their prescriptions but they do seem to be a far distance from the hubris that emerged and prevailed through the development of new welfare economics. Behavioral paternalists are neither engineers nor design theorists, 
who prescribe wholesale remaking, as did William Stanley Jevons. Thank you. This is Bart, and I want to thank the organizers for the invitation to comment on Mario and Glenn's book. It was a pleasure to read it as a manuscript in electronic form and to go through it again as a hefty physical object, though I didn't go through all 439 pages again. They have produced a systematic and comprehensive audit of the modern concept of rationality, of behavioral economics and paternalism, the hard, soft, libertarian and otherwise forms. And have found all of them wanting. I wanna organize my remarks around why I think they, we have this problem that they identified. Their book fills several gaps in the nudging and paternalism behavioral economics literature by compiling a large swath of research in one place and then submitting it to a thorough cross-examination. This is no small feat. Uh, the literature which they draw upon is voluminous. Sure, the literature has been subjected to some well-argued critiques before, many of which have been out there for some time, but little has stuck. Behavioral economists and paternalists, as, as Glenn alluded to, remain undeterred and unreflective and unresponsive to their critics. The core behavioral economics literature, which I'm most familiar with, proceeds as if the science is set up. Hyperbolic discounting exists, it just does. The endowment effect exists, it just does. And as Mario mentioned, it goes on for another 170. But that was in 19, 2019 when I looked up the Wikipedia page. In 2021, it seems there are another 42 new biases that have been discovered during the pandemic. As uh, Glenn and Mario note, and you are no doubt well aware, many of these biases, quote, have attained the status of truism. And with Professor Richard Thaler receiving the Nobel Prize for his contributions to behavioral economics, and they are indeed contributions, there now seems to be a problem of concentrated conceptual confusions and dispersed empirical evidence. Behavioral economics is a special interest of standard social science. And escaping paternalism is a constant concerted effort to collect that evidence of biases in one place and subject the whole to a rigorous synthetic re-examination. So how is it possible for a field of study to need such a re-examination when its main contribution in the words of Thaler himself is, quote, the recognition that economic agents are human and that economic models have to incorporate that. What could possibly go wrong with making economics a little more human? Mario and Glenn identify the source of the problem in the preface in chapter one, and I think correctly so, as the notion of what is meant by rational and the concept of rationality. Rationality in economics has come to the point of, as they put it, dictating the normative structure of preferences and beliefs a priori. In contrast, Glenn and Mario espouse what they call inclusive rationality, purposeful behavior based on subjective preferences and beliefs in the presence of both environmental and cognitive constraints, end quote. To me, this sounds like Mario and Glenn are likewise interested in economic agents as human beings, to wit, they used the phrase real people 26 times, mostly in the first third and last chapter of the book. Now, as an experimental economist, my guard naturally goes up at the sound of the modifier real. Too many times I've heard the phrase real world used as an objection to the so-called validity of laboratory studies of human conduct. But as I read them, the authors and I are on the same page. The difference between them and me on the on one hand, and Thaler and the behavioral economists on the other, is the method by which we study economic agents as human beings. Prior to the advent of behavioral and external economics, the modeling of preferences and beliefs in economics had become, and it still is, a glamorous exercise. 
I mean glamorous in the full Virginia Postrel sense of the word. The mathematics of preferences and beliefs give the appearance of effortlessness to the description slash explanation of ordinary human conduct. And the compactness and simplicity of its logic creates the illusion of a more attractive appearance for its subject matter. In the 1990s and 2000s, behavioral economists took the illusion, the glamour, of preference modeling at face value and added their own shiny veneer of empirical science with equally compact and simple tests of such models. Behavioral economics remained just mysterious and idealized enough so that the behavioral economists and their readers could identify with their descriptions and explanations of human behavior. I say descriptions and explanation because you can never pin experimental or behavioral economists down and what they're doing with their models. Consumers of behavioral economists think things like, it seems reasonable from my experience that people I know are overconfident in their abilities and economists are no less loss averse than everyone else. But the glamor of the scientific method in behavioral economics is translucent only showing the things that behavioral economists are looking for, namely anomalous to quote, rational preferences. Behavioral economists think they're not fooled by the glamor of the standard neoclassical models. They think that they have unlocked the modeling spell that bewitches the average economist's interpretation of human behavior. They think their experiments reveal the true preferences of ordinary people. What Mario and Glenn argue is that behavioral economists are still caught in the glamor of their experiment. They can't see that the true preferences of a different, but still neoclassical sort, are likewise a mirage. They fail to see, once the glamor of the standard neoclassical models is removed, another glamor of ugly, warted preferences in ordinary people. What they, do, what they do see are their policy prescriptions as an antidote for the infection that causes those ugly preferences. So the difference between Mario and Glenn and behavioral economists is that Mario and Glenn are not fooled by the glamor of neoclassical models and the behavioral economist experiments. They see human beings in example after example in chapters three through five for what we are complicated, messy, difficult to pin down creatures. They show, for example, that the intransitivity of preferences, quote, can be created or dissolved by virtue of description. The problem is not that some people sometimes don't have transitive preferences in need of transmitizing. The problem, or rather the beauty of purposeful human behavior, is that facts, quote, do not magically appear in the brain. Love that line. Human beings must interpret them. The problem as they see it is that behavioral economists attempt to fit purposeful behavior of human beings into the Procrustean bed of experiments and neoclassical models of true preferences. One lesson to take away from reading Rizzo and Whitman beyond the stated conclusion of the second half of the book, not to treat people as puppets, is that economists should first take care to understand human beings as human beings. An overarching theme for the first half of the book is that people, both the puppets and the puppet masters, are interpretive beings. They use the words interpret and interpretation 121 times in the book, two-thirds of which are in the first half of the book. Human beings are in symbolic beings and symbolic perceivers. Meaning is not logical. There is no reason to assume that people should ignore modes of presentation because choice in different frames is not strict logical performance. As they put it very clearly, quote, in the standard approach, the ultimate objects of choice are imagined to be simply objects to which one can point in the world. They're supposed to be independent of their description. And yet, how can this be? The perfume industry creates not only scents, but scents with a certain image portrayal. Thus, when people buy perfume, they also buy the aura, 
or image that the manufacturer and others associate with the sin. This is the product, and so too with many other goods. Human beings do not simply choose objects with a certain molecular structure or chemical composition, ignoring else, all else, nor should they. End the quote. I focus my comments on the first half of the book, which I must admit are the ideas closest to my interest in my heart. In doing so, I failed to convey the brilliance of their rhetorical strategy in building their case against paternalism. The major thrust of the book in chapters six through 10 is on the problems with behavioral and paternalistic policymaking. I will only say that the argument in this, in this section is meticulously and clearly presented as the authors, and this is the key part for the oral structure of the book, helpfully return to the same examples from the beginning to the end of the book. That took real care. I would, I'd also add that chapter three in its appendix should be required reading for all graduate students in economics. It is a fantastic primer on rationality and revealed preference in economics and the meaning thereof, which no one ever wants to seem to talk about. If I'm going to nitpick a bit about the book, it's the first half of chapter eight is a general rehashing of public choice economics, which the familiar reader can skip over. But since the book isn't written just for the reader who knows public choice, the unfamiliar reader must not skip over it. This does not, however, detract from the important contribution of the book makes to economics. I, I wish there was a way to nudge behavioral economists to read and respond to it. For I'm confident that the true preference is to read it and to come to grips with its arguments and conclusions. If they haven't or they won't, I'm sure we can come up with a bias as an explanation of why. Um, so I really appreciate both uh, uh, Sandra's and Bart's uh, interventions, as well as your description as you laid out. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me in reading the book is early on, you bring up Buchanan and the notion of the formation of preferences. In a interesting way, you do have a two paradigm thesis going on, which is, this is not new to Sandy at all, but you know, there's this two paradigms, which are economics from the inside out and economics from the outside in. And the economics from the inside out, in many ways, treats the knowledge problem, I would suggest, as that the theorist can never have the knowledge that the actors in the economy themselves have, as opposed to economics from the outside, which is even like Lucas' critique is that no agent in the economy doesn't have what the theorist has. But those are two different kind of knowledge problems. And I, and I was wondering, you know, when, I mean, I, I, you know, the way is, as Bart referred to it, there's a brilliant rhetorical strategy that's used throughout the whole book. And I think that that's correct. But as people yourselves who understand the issue of the formation of preferences, when you were working through this, did you see these two different paradigm, two paradigm ideas like playing their way out throughout the whole thing? Because at some level at the very back end of the book, you're embracing the inside out view, which is one of humility and the student of society rather than a savior of society and, and those kind of things when you talk about Mill's harm principle. And I was just wondering, you know, where in your head you adjudicate your connection to that older debate about where what perspective we take as economists? I, I think the short answer to your question is that, no, we didn't think about it in those terms. Uh, but if I understand you correctly, I, it is something that was uh, going on as we thought through these issues. Uh, in particular, I, I think it nicely lines up with this distinction between local knowledge and scientific knowledge. Uh, so what the behavioral economists uh, believe they found is relevant scientific knowledge that the planner, the uh, the theorist or the policymaker may have access to in a way that the individual does not. And so essentially what they're saying is you have biases operating in your choices and you're unaware of them. And so in some ways that's a challenge 
to the, the primacy of local knowledge and to the primacy of individual knowledge of preferences. In some sense, they say, well, we may have knowledge that is relevant to your own personal decision making that you lack. Uh, so uh, what is the response to that? I mean, one response is simply to say that may well be true, but it does not diminish the importance of the local knowledge the, and the tacit knowledge that is possessed by the individual himself. And so it will simply be impossible to uh, bring the two together uh, without access to the latter. Um, the other question is, it goes to the heterogeneity issue that I talked about earlier, though, is that the kind of scientific knowledge that the behavioral economist brings to bear is not necessarily going to be directly applicable to the individual. I might be able to say, well, 20% of people in society happen to have uh, a form of present bias or hyperbolic uh, discounting. Um, is that true for this particular individual? who knows and who's in an, who's in a position to say whether it applies in this particular instance and who's in a position to say how strong that bias is in this particular case so it might very well be the case that behavioral economists can share that scientific knowledge with people and mario and i you know repeatedly say it is not paternalistic to share information with people unless the purpose of doing so is strictly to manipulate their behavior rather than providing them with additional information uh, but uh, but it's up to the individual to decide how to process that and apply it to their own particular case. Mario, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not convinced that people don't don't know they suffer from some of these biases because many of these biases are just uh, concepts or notions that were part of the sort of folk wisdom that people had before they were given scientific names. Um, I mean, people, people in effect know about present bias. They know that they make plans and then sometimes they depart from the plans when the, uh, the smell of the, uh, of the cake is in front of them. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure they don't have this knowledge. And so, uh, but, you know, perhaps uh, some of them don't, or perhaps there are some biases that they never uh, thought about. Uh, at some early stage in all of this, uh, I had either an email or maybe it was in that Wall Street Journal uh, discussion that's uh, online somewhere or other with, uh, with Richard Thaler. But in any event, I asked him, well, are you writing a, an advice book? In other words, it was unclear at the very beginning how much was the role of government in their system and how much was the role of private entities, uh, how much was advice. I said, you're teaching a business school. So are you giving advice to businesses about automatic enrollment? Or is this an advice book to people about what biases to look out for? And I never got a straight answer on that. Um, but to the extent that it is an advice book or that behavioral economics is a sort of advice book, uh, I have no objection to it. Uh, but it's when it gets into the realm of policy that I think there, there is a significant problem. If I go back to some of the old um, paternalist literature, and, and, and especially perhaps some of the paternalist literature that arose out of religious concerns that people were not uh, being morally uh, um, uh, sufficiently careful. Uh, and um, I could see easily pe people, if not using the exact language, but saying that, look, if people really knew what was in the their interests, uh, or if people really understood what they were doing, they would seek to change their behavior, change their preferences. Now, how is that really different from true preferences? Uh, for example, to say that, um, you know, uh, working hard and saving money is what God wants you to do and sort of a Protestant uh, view of things, uh, is what God wants you to do. This is what benefits your immortal soul. So isn't it obvious that that is really your true preference to benefit your immortal soul? So what I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not sure 
there's that much of a difference. Uh, the rhetoric is certainly different. Uh, Jevons rhetoric is more classist uh, and, um, you know, more, in a sense, dictatorial. Uh, but the other, in talking about true preferences, I'm not sure that that's not sort of a smokescreen, in effect, for exactly the same thing that the old paternalists were advocating. So, I don't know. I'm still struggling with that, and I'm not sure, you know, what the, the correct view should be. Well, I greatly appreciate everyone uh, spending the time today and doing and discussing this very important book. And again, we recommend to all of the listeners out there to make sure you get your copy, not just to improve Mario and Glenn's sales, but to actually enlighten. It's a very, very carefully researched, thoroughly examined book on one of the most important and fundamental topics that we deal with as social scientists. So Mario and Glenn, congratulations on this great work. And Sandy and Bart, thank you so much for your contributions today. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.